Well, good morning again, everyone. As we've been advertising about and pushing with people to let you know it's coming as we're starting our series this morning in the book of Esther. Now, in case you missed it, I put together a six-minute long introductory video kind of giving you the historical and literary context of this book. I highly recommend that you watch that at some point. It really will help you get more out of this sermon series as we're looking at strong Old Testament women this spring. First Esther and then the book of Ruth. And so today will be in Esther chapter 1, uh, the whole first chapter. And boys and girls, I apologize, but I just couldn't do uh, a rewrite of the entire book. So there is no children's translation for this book, but we'll put one together for Ruth for you. But before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Now, Father God, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us in speech, Father, that we might know you, that we might know your truth, that we might know your gospel and be changed by both. So Lord, we ask that today you would indeed show us more of your grace and your favor in the Lord Jesus by your Spirit today. Although we do pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Esther is set in the Persian Empire roughly 500 years before Christ. Now what has happened at this point is that Israel, ancient Israel, had split into two nations, the ten northern tribes and then Judah in the south. And the ten northern tribes were conquered and taken away by the Assyrian Empire. They're gone, they're lost to history. Then about a generation later, the Babylonian Empire came in and they surrounded and took over Jerusalem and Judea and took them away to Babylon. Now the idea was, what they would do is they would take away and indoctrinate the cultural political, and religious leaders so that the remnant left over had no leaders to lead any kind of rebellion. But the problem was is that a broken people like that couldn't prosper and therefore they couldn't pay a lot of taxes. It made the empire weak. So along comes the Persian Empire. They're a bit more enlightened and they conquer Babylon. They allow captives to return home. They even provide funds to rebuild their cities And they allow freedom of worship. The only caveat was, look, pay your taxes, obey the law, don't rebel, and we all good. So what happened was the Torah-thumping, catechism-quoting Hebrews, they left and they went home to rebuild both Jerusalem and the temple. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah follow their plight. But here in Esther, we see there's a big chunk of Jews who are not quite so gung-ho to leave. So they stayed, and they settled down into a comfortable life in Persia. They go to the synagogue on Saturday. They teach their kids a few prayers. They're good Jewish Persians, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I bring that up because we may have more in common with the Jews in Persia than with any other people in the Bible. I say that because the big idea in Esther is this. Empire assimilates people with an attractive, predatory culture. Now, we don't have the same form of government, but we live today in a similar assimilating pressure. A constant, subtle, yet powerful pull to cast off distinctives and just be like everyone else. So a key to the book of Esther is this idea of assimilation. Not utter destruction of a people group and differences, but changing their distinctives just enough to make them fit in better and prosper. 
See, for these Jews in Persia, the question was, why not just become Persians? I mean, sure, they had their stories about the Lord and the Exodus and the giving of the Ten Commandments, but all those stories happened a long time ago when God was real and active and verbal. He sure seemed like a long way off to the average believer just trying to make a living. Does that sound familiar? I mean, God seems so silent now sometimes, doesn't He? And our culture acts like an empire. It has so much to offer. So much that is attractive and beautiful. You know, if you step back and you look at the whole thing in its entirety, the combined human accomplishments of culture have glory. And part of our heart desperately wants to touch that glory. Why can't we just assimilate and be good church-going citizens? A vibrant Christian faith can be challenging in the constant, subtle, and sometimes not so subtle pressure just to fit in, keep Jesus private, and prosper. It's so much easier to be silent cogs in the machine of commerce, which is the goal of empire. So I'm going to be using that word empire throughout this series, and I am not using it politically. I'm naming our current cultural mix of humanism, consumerism, and personal fulfillment under the title empire. How do we live in the midst of an attractive empire and resist assimilation with a silent God? Well, a major part of Esther's answer is to show the ridiculousness of empire and then laugh at it. The book of Esther is a revolutionary, subversive, parody tract. It makes fun of empire's glory. You're supposed to laugh throughout the book, and we're going to laugh. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Empire's glory is not for you, but God's is. See, empire's glory is a weapon, but God's glory is a gift. So as we get to God's Word today, to the actual text, since this is a long narrative, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to read it in sections, and then we'll talk about each of those sections in turn. So the first thing we see here as we get to Esther is that God's empire's glory is tempting. Let's look together at verses 1 through 4. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So the text starts out and we meet Ahasuerus. His more famous Greek name is Xerxes. He became emperor at age 32. He ruled a huge area the size of the current United States, from Pakistan to Greece to northern Sudan. It's taken him three years to secure his position, and now he's having a huge inaugural ball. It lasts for six months. It sounds incredible, but it actually is not unheard of at the time. And this huge six-month-long party is meant 
to reward and impress. Now I want to zoom in on verse 4 together. So if you look at that, verse 4 says this, As Xerxes, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. A kind of rough, literal translation of that would be he showed off the glory of his splendor and the beauty of his majesty. He was showing off. And you think that you take great care in curating your social media to impress others and to show off your glory? Xerxes has us all beat. He took six months to do it. See, empire tempts with its glory. It tries to convince us that it can fulfill you, but really that promise is empty because it's a false glory. And we see that if you look together now at verses 5 through 9, continuing on in the story. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of puffery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the place that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So this huge feast had been going on for six months. It had been empire-wide, but it was the heaviest celebrations where Xerxes was there in Susa. That population, that city had seen their tax dollars at work. So he gives them their own seven-day party. Even the commoners got to come and participate in this. And we get this detailed description of the tremendous excess of his palace. It says that the curtain rods... Oh, you know that scripture talks about curtain rods. Interior decorating is a thing in the Old Testament. It says the rods, they weren't just metal that looked silver. They were actual silver rods. And they had violet hangings and purple metal. Purple was the most expensive color on the planet at the time. It came from this little bitty mollusk in the ocean. It was so hard to get that only the richest of the rich ever had anything purple. In fact, most people there at this week-long party had never seen the color before. Isn't that crazy to think about? I mean, this is an ancient version of MTV Cribs or, or Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I mean, you can almost hear Robin Leach reading verses 6 and 7 talking about how utterly fabulous this is. But in, instead of 20 minutes plus commercials, it takes Xerxes 180 days to show off all his stuff. And then at the end of the episode... He gives all the viewers a seven-day feast. And as his assistant is posting all this on Insta, of course, it's under the hashtag, blessed. You see, Empire wants you to long for your six-month party. To think you will find security and happiness if you can just tap into Empire's glory. But there's a hint here that the original readers would catch. There's one other place, and only one, in the Old Testament, where such opulence is described in detail. It's the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
See, the writer here reminds his Jewish readers the empire's excesses are a pitiful attempt to mimic and recreate the aura of the temple. A false glory mimicking the glory the creator offers so that people will then worship the empire, give themselves to the empire and its goals rather than worship the creator. See, this pressure to become empire's property, to give yourself to the empire is where the text goes Next, let's look together at verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Vesar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now it would be easy to use this as a harangue against the evils of drinking, but that is not what the writer intends. Drunken decisions were actually done on purpose in ancient Persia. They actually believed that they gained access to the spiritual world through intoxication. It's how their fake glory tapped into the holy to gain wisdom and certainty. So Xerxes' fermented wisdom here tells him to send his eunuchs to fetch his queen. And I want to zoom in here on these messengers first. So we said empire tempts with its glory, and these guys have fallen completely for the temptation. A eunuch was a man who had had his ability to have children removed. In an ancient culture which valued having children to carry on your name and line, I mean, there was such a value put on having offspring that most people would rather be poor and have children than rich and have none. Eunuchs gave up all of that for empire. They could never be emperor, but they could be in the room where it happens. They could see how the sausage gets made, and they could taste some of empire's glory. And so they sacrificed everything for their career to get a taste of that glory. So Xerxes sends a squadron of these guys to fetch Vashti, but she won't come. Big bad Xerxes showing off his glory for 187 days wants to top it off and he can't get his own wife to follow him. Now the text does not tell us why she refused. It's easy to think that she wanted to be respected or that his drunken request was beneath her. But the cultural place of women in ancient Persia wasn't really conducive to those motivations. She may have been a queen, but to empire... She was barely above a slave. She existed for empire's glory. And like the eunuchs, she was supposed to give everything to empire because our second point, empire's glory is fragile. Let's look together verses 13 through 18. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina and Shethgar and Admatha and Tarshish and Meriz and Marsina and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. 
according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Hasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have, ha- who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. So Xerxes calls an emergency cabinet meeting of princes and wise men. And not only are they all still a bit tipsy, but it's ridiculous because verse 13 and following takes place in the palace situation room. They've got the monitors all over with the satellite pictures showing the position of their forces because they've got to do something about the women. It's ridiculous. And they act like it's the end of the world as we know it and they don't feel fine. What are we going to do about the women? All the women are going to refuse their husbands. Big bad empire is so fragile it will fall apart unless we stop the women. See, their reaction exposes the profound fragility at the core of fake glory. She has to be canceled so their house of cards won't fall. They can't let it go. She has to pay and they have to save face. They have to make it a big deal. And here's what makes it so funny. I mean like LOL funny. It's not merely that they fear the women won't obey. The issue is what the women won't obey. There is a clear conjugal context to verses 17 and 18. In the vernacular, his cabinet members are panicking and saying, Xerxes, if Vashti gets away with this, then all the women in all the world are going to feel empowered to look at their husbands and say, no, not tonight. I have a headache. And Xerxes, we can't have that. You see, the writer wants us to see that culture is often a house of cards built on ego and pettiness pretending to be real leadership. God's people then and now live in a world where the reins of power are often in the hands of the incompetent. So don't take the glory of empire seriously. Just laugh. Laugh at how fragile culture's false glory really is. But in our laughing at the system, we also mourn for how fragile it makes the people. We long for them to find the peace and wholesomeness offered to them in the gospel. And so we've seen that empire's glory is tempting, empire's glory is fragile, and finally we see that empire's glory is controlling. Look with me at verses 19 through 22 now. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes 
And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man must be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. It's funny and sad. You know, when we are confronted with our own fragility or the fragility of something we've committed to, we react by overprotecting it. And as we see here, often that overprotection comes in the form not just of micromanaging. This is micromanipulation. It's attempting to manage all behavior. See, because empire's glory, culture's glory is false, it's fundamentally insecure. And so it covers that insecurity with control. We blazed past it, but I want to go back real quick to verse 8 and look at that together. Verse 8 said this, And drinking was done according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Empire is so keen on control, it told people when they could drink at parties like this. Usually you could only drink when the emperor drinks. In fact, you must drink when he drinks. That micromanipulation, that rule is cast aside for this week-long party, so it's one giant open bar. But the fact that they had drinking rules and the fact that they had to relax them indicate how controlling this was, how much conformity is part of empire's power. And we find ourselves in a very similar place in our time. Cancel culture, call-out culture cannot exist without a foundation of control and conformity. The emphasis here is on controlling as much of life as they can. And so amazingly, these drunk wise men actually send this law out to every language, to the whole empire, making sure everybody knows what they didn't want everybody to know. They send out this decree, and remember, it's in a conjugal context. The bureaucrats in the capital have now decreed that every man should rule in their homes and how they should rule in the bedroom. Also, the emperor and the empire can save face. It's ridiculous, but there's actually a really profound assumption here. Empire owns you. It should do this. It's smarter than you. You can't rule your home unless empire tells you how. Empire is the ultimate nanny to us, the toddlers. Empire wants us to need it. See, when that shift in a culture takes place, pettiness and control in the form of law reign. I want to give you a mental exercise so you can understand what I'm saying here. I want you to think of two words, legislator and lawmaker. When I was growing up, you heard legislator kind of, lawmaker occasionally. But I bet most millennials and probably all Gen Zers have never actually heard anybody in Congress or Senate called a legislator. It's always a lawmaker. And that's a cultural shift. Legislator is Latin for law reader. It assumes that a law exists out there and the human reads that law and then tries to make a law that reflects that greater reality. The good and the just equals conformity to those universal truths outside of humankind. A lawmaker assumes the exact opposite. Humanity constructs the law. 
We decide what is good and what is just. And when you have a culture of lawmakers instead of legislators, you get pettiness and control made into law. Law is no longer a tool of peace and justice. Rather, it's a weapon for control like it was here in Persia. See, God gives his people Torah, usually translated law. Empire wants to be God, so it creates its own law. And instead of bringing freedom and flourishing, as God says his law does, empire's law creates cancel culture, call-out culture, and a tyranny of control. All because culture, this big bad empire, is so insecure and so fragile that it will fall unless this law is passed. We've got to stop the unwanted behavior. It's ridiculous. I tried to read it in such a way that you would laugh at that last part of chapter 1. This big bad culture we live in, it tells us that we're odd for believing in a resurrection. It will assimilate you unless you connect with something more significant than empire's false glory. So don't take the glory of this world too seriously. Just laugh. Or sometimes, as I did on Wednesday evening, instead of laughing, you cry at what culture does to people. You know, a sermon is not an abstract lecture on an ancient text. Rather, it's a meshing of God's word then with our world today so you can see how it's God's word now. And I would be derelict in my pastoral duty if I completely ignored the events of Wednesday. You know, honoring Jesus as a good citizen requires me to be an informed voter. And I care very deeply about my country, and I hope you do too. But if we are so wrapped up in who sits in the Oval Office that our whole world falls apart if our person isn't there, we have been assimilated into the emperor's idea of false glory. We are functionally looking to that person as our Savior and hope rather than resting in King Jesus, whose government, as we saw during Advent, shall have no end. You know, King Jesus, although never mentioned, looms large in this text. Esther is more than just a critique of culture. It is Christian scripture pointing to God's saving work in the person of Jesus. So I want to wrap up by making a couple of observations about the beauty of King Jesus in this first chapter of Esther. First one is this. In verses 10 and 11, Xerxes sends eunuchs, people who have given everything for him to force his bride to shame herself for his joy. But in Jesus, we find a king who gives everything for us even shaming himself on the cross to give his bride, us, joy. When summoned by her king, Vashti refused. And so Xerxes banished her from his presence. And when summoned by our king in our sin, we refused. And so Jesus banished himself on the cross to give God's presence to us. For those of you who know Jesus, 
our King invites us into a deeper intimacy, a more profound walk with Him. Do not refuse Him. For those of you who are still investigating Christianity, King Jesus holds out an invitation to you as well. Not to be better, not to do better, not to be more moral, but He holds out an invitation for you to cast yourself upon His grace and mercy alone. To recognize that He lived the life you should have lived to forgive you of your sins. He died the death you should have died to pay the penalty for your sins. And now He purchased your place in heaven with His resurrection and He reconciles you to the Creator. All out of love for you. That King invites you. So for all of us, remember, empire's glory is not for you, but God's is. And He gives that glory to you when you place your faith and trust in King Jesus, who even now calls His bride. Heed the invitation and come. Let's pray together. And gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this unorthodox text. For some of us, it feels weird to laugh at Scripture and to see how it's funny. We thank You, Lord, that You, the inventor of humor, who gave us our sense of humor, uses it here to show us the truth of Your gospel and grace. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to withstand the assimilating pressure of culture. We pray, Lord, that we would would do that, Father, because we see how beautiful Jesus is in the Gospel. And that because we're so enthralled with Him, culture doesn't even have a chance at our affections. Oh, Lord, by your Spirit, would you show us again and again the beauty of Jesus. We ask that you would do this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the Lord's benediction, even in your own home if you want to stand up. May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forevermore. Amen.